Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Research Denise Chisholm is back on the program. She discusses second quarter earnings results and whether tech still sits in a leadership position within the market. Denise explains to host Pamela Ritchie that while investors were surprised by market resilience, historic data indicates that heightened inflation increases the likelihood of fewer earnings contractions. She says that on a go-forward basis, markets are seeing a shift from above average to modest returns, but remain above negative territory. Denise says that although tech has delivered historic outperformance from a rankings perspective, she prefers consumer discretionary over technology. Along with consumer discretionary, Denise adds there is also opportunity in the small cap space with industrials. Denise also touches on the bond market and what she thinks of the yield curve inversion. This podcast was recorded on August 14th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Denise. Great to see you. How are you? Hi, I'm well, Pamela. It's great to be here. Oh, so glad that you could join us to to help us understand a little bit of, of what we've seen so far particularly in terms of the results of the second quarter earnings, but but also this discrepancy that, um, you know, why aren't we seeing great relief and, and stock rallies across the boards when second quarter earnings are, you know, pretty good for a lot of stocks? Yeah, earnings has been very good in some ways. Like the average beat has been 67% of what we've seen so far. I mean, retail is still to report. Uh, but it's been pretty solid upside surprise in earnings and better than we've experienced over the last couple quarters. But what we're seeing is a very muted market reaction. The median stock on the day of a beat has basically been flat, maybe 0.1% higher, which is some of the lowest levels that we've seen going back to 2016, certainly bottom quartile very different from what we've seen over the past two years, where stock beats have been met with, let's call it three to 5% upside. So the question becomes, is this very muted market reaction in individual stocks or tending to a problem in the market? So I think history can really help us when we look back historically. Yes, we are in the bottom quartile, but the interesting part is what that has meant more was a function of what has happened in the past versus what will happen in the future, meaning that you more often than not see these muted market returns after stocks have moved a lot over the last six months, which is exactly the situation that we've been in. In fact, market moves the way I'm measuring it over the last six months have been about 15%. And that's dead on the historical average when you have this immediate market reaction. 
So when you look at it on a go forward basis, does this link to below average returns or negative returns over the next six months? The answer is not really. It's around average returns. And in any quartile of whatever you were in on that market reaction, it's actually fairly the same. So maybe you could say that we're in a shift from well above average market returns to, you know, on a forward basis, maybe being more in line. Uh, but you certainly couldn't say that it's a negative going forward. Now, interestingly enough, though, the, there's a different pattern around earnings estimates. So we have seen, when I look at the trailing 12 months of the, you know, our synthetic uh, Russell 3000 going back historically, we, you have seen an inflection and a move. And 100% of the time, historically, that has been the case when you're moving into this muted reaction. And that has usually continued in the future meaning that more often than not, you've seen a lot of earnings move, and you have, hence why you get this muted market reaction, but that ball in motion tends to stay in motion, and that usually becomes the pause that refreshes for higher earnings estimates in the future. That's so interesting because, you know, some people have wondered when you sort of listen, you look at that, you look at the muted reaction, and then then you'll hear some of the comments that are made from, from the leadership of the companies and so on. And Margins are still high. Wages are still high. So you sort of go to that. Well, is is that why there's a muted reaction? There, you know, the costs are still high. We're we're sitting at interest rates being high. The cost of capital is high. Um, is there a struggle with that ahead? And and does that sort yeah. of explain things? It does it. We have not really. So there's a lot of nuance behind costs as we sort of think about them in the data and what is likely in terms of margins. I think number one in terms of what you need to know about margins as an investor is that they have declined, right? So they're down, let's call it 100, 150 basis points, which yes, it was worse in the financial crisis. Yes, it has been worse than the past, but they are down. And that is the reason behind the fact that earnings are contracting by about five to 7% on a 12 month basis. The question is now what will happen in the future? And I think that this is where investors get a little bit confused because the data is not mm, perhaps easily explainable. When I look in the data and we did just see real wages inflect much higher, right? Because inflation has decelerated so rapidly. So now we're sitting in the top quartile, real wage growth is positive, And a lot of investors say to me, well, that's a problem because that's cost for real earnings perceived in the in the overall you know corporate profits and what is very clear in the data is that what you see is the higher the real wage growth is the more likely margins are to be higher in the future and partly that's a function of end demand the higher real wages are the more likely it is that end demand is higher and sales growth accelerates quicker than your costs. So that's what you usually see historically. So what it highlights is this problem of investors really holding everything else constant. So if I hold everything constant and wages go up, that means profits will go down. But the problem is history, the historical data really shows you your willingness to do that as a, you know, as a statistical technique should be around whether or not that all else equal really does make sense historically. And what it highlights is that it does not. Partly around, I have a lot of questions around, well, I'm, I'm correlating the chart 
of profit margins to the overall PPI. And PPI is low, and that's a bad indicator of profit margins because they're, they're positively correlated, meaning the lower PPI is, the lower margins are likely to be. And that is, it's a little bit of a trick there. So it's a coincident indicator. So margins have been lower because PPI has been lower. But if you sort of peel back the onion and tr start to try and explain the data, what happens when the PPI falls so much is that it's most likely falling faster than the CPI, which is let's call that pricing power, and let's call PPI input goods. So if your price of inputs is falling faster than your pricing power, when you look over the next 12 months, it is likely that margins advance. That's so interesting. Okay, so it's a coincidence. And then, because I thought I got the aha when you said, you know, you're hiring more, the wages, or sorry, wages and margins are expanding because there's a demand, because, because there's a consumer demand. And there does seem to be a number of questions around whether we've had enough of high costs. You know, there sort of is that, where is the fatigue? Uh, is there a fatigue uh, or, or are we still willing to pay these higher costs? Have we adapted? I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's interesting. So in the data, what we've seen is, I would say you've seen the consumer pushback against high costs. So everything X shelter, I mean, we just recently saw a report, you're below 2% on year on year pace that is well below what we saw a year ago. I think in the X shelter component, it was in advance of 9%. So you have seen a clear pushback in everything X shelter and even shelter is actually decelerating. So I do think the marginal propensity to consume at higher price points has been an issue. The bigger issue around corporate America in some ways, like I think both um, the US consumer has pushed back against higher prices in some ways as has corporate America. When you look at, I, mean, I think one way to think about the wage you know, nuance in terms of explaining the story is to really look at unit labor costs. Yes, wages are still high from a growth rate perspective, although they've decelerated, but still sort of growing at an aggressive clip. And I think the confusion around that profits is somehow embodied in the component of unit labor costs, which have now fallen fast enough to fall back into the, you know, average level that we saw in the 2010s. So this is not that different. In some ways, corporate America has figured out how to make money through those high costs via productivity or via capital intensity or via something else. So I think the writing starts to be on the wall with the nuance behind all of that economic data that you are starting to see a turn in both the you know, price of inputs and potentially a deceleration in wages, an acceleration in end demand, which is driven by real wages, and a, a meaningfully meaningful shift in corporate America, the way they have digested those high costs. I think you put all of that together, and a lot of the data that I look at suggests higher earnings and margins in the future. Wow. And that what we're sitting in right now or watching could be, as you say, sort of a, re a reset. I forget the term you used. Did you say sort of a, a resetting right now? Yes, exactly. Fascinating. So what would you say in, so we talked about a number of things there that, that may have been the interesting nuance to the earnings, but outside of that, um, what would you say you found either interesting or lacking or surprising in a, to the upside? What, what do you take away right now from earnings? Great question. When you step back, I mean, really what I try and do is recognize patterns in history. And I think that the patterns that we have seen 
I think a lot of investors were surprised by the resilience in earnings. I think for me, that made a lot of sense with higher inflationary regimes because the higher inflation is, the more likely it is that earnings contract less because earnings growth is essentially nominal. And oftentimes you get this double whammy of headwinds quickly turn to tailwinds and goods can decelerate faster, which helps margins on the upside. So you sort of have a positive risk reward for earnings growth. Now, if you step back looking at the pattern, once you see that contraction, 90% of the time, with the only exception being the financial crisis, earnings reaccelerates. We're starting to see that happen in earnings revisions and a lot of the leading indicators that I'm talking about suggest that that is likely to continue. So right now, earnings expectations are, I think, around plus just shy of maybe 10% growth next year. When earnings recover historically, they usually recover 20 to 30%, which is not to say that you have to blow through the math of 10, um, but generally speaking, you can sort of back into it and say, well, the market is pricing in half the typical earnings recovery. And that's one way to think about what the market is discounting. So when I am you know, faced with the question, there are a lot of ways to answer the questions of what the market is discounting. I would say it's not discounting a full recovery right now. It's about halfway there in terms of earnings estimate. Hmm. So when we see, I, I want to ask you about leadership because we, we've seen over the course of, you know, last sort of last week, uh, some some big tech names that clearly have led the way this year. Um, selling off, I don't know if they're right sizing or what you want to call that, but you know, does, does tech still sit in a leadership position? Back to the question of breadth, really. What happens from here? Yes, we have seen, look, historic outperformance. If you look, and this is all on my LinkedIn, if you look at the difference between cyclical performance in any economic sector in aggregate versus defense, consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, um, you have seen a top 1% move over the last six months. Right, so this is very. This has been a very short, aggressive move higher, uh, and maybe you could say it's too far, too fast over the short term. But for me, you know, the answer is on a one-year time horizon. Now that we have moved this much, is it likely to continue? And the answer is, ironically, yes. The more powerful the cyclical move has been relative to defense, the more likely it is to in the future. And what I see is that we're about maybe 60% of the way through what you would consider a typical cyclical rotation if you get an earnings recovery, which like we just talked about, I think I'm seeing a lot of the leading indicators suggesting that's a still positive risk reward. So now you're in the exact opposite position of you were with the defensive rotation, which left you at three times the typical valuation seen during prior recessions, which really tipped your risk reward negative. All of a sudden, the cyclical rotation is actually still tipping your um, tipping the risk reward positive for cyclicality. And the answer is around earnings. So it is usually that stocks lead. So this is one of those, maybe stocks are actually giving us a clue in this powerful cyclical rotation that earnings are likely to surprise to the upside, which is what you've seen historically. Now backing up, what is likely to happen over the next three months? I really have no idea. When you think about like just a you know simple technical analysis after a move this powerful, would it be strange to see a 33% Fibonacci retracement? No, it absolutely would not. The question that I'm asked a lot of, if you see the dip, would you rather be selling it or would you rather be buying it? And all the data that I'm looking at suggests the same. You'd rather be a buyer of that 
for likely continued leadership out of technology, consumer discretionary, and industrials. Although I will say that from a ranking perspective, I still most prefer consumer discretionary above technology. Amazing. And that's even as the consumer, and we're talking about the American consumer, because um, yes. I feel like there's a Canada housing mortgage story that is different here. And I don't, anyway, we'll, we won't mix it. But in the US, the consumer has therefore adapted, I mean, to to higher interest rates, essentially, whether it's their mortgage or any other part of their overall economic story. Yes. I mean, the consumer was in a solid position sort of coming into this year and in some ways has been in now an improved position. When you think about that real wage growth? So finally, deceler the deceleration in inflation has given back some real income to U.S. consumers, maybe at the point where savings, you know, you know excess savings were slightly run down and maybe at the point where, you know, loan growth is continuing to decelerate after the banking crisis. But again, what you see historically from a rock, paper, scissors uh, kind of math or, or statistical math for the for the equity market is that real income is much more important than loan growth. And that is what has been provided the, you know, a positive risk reward for both the U.S. consumer and spending power. And we're starting to see the pickup in consumer confidence and in the broader market as well. Fascinating. It's so incredibly fascinating. OK, take us to sort of other parts of the market, I, I guess, kind of still the breadth story, but more in terms of either small caps or yeah. going to a strategy that is, you know, maybe more value oriented because growth is done so well. I mean, it actually sounds like you kind of answered that question, but 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 take us to other parts of the market in terms of either strategy or size. Yeah, down the cap spectrum still has not really worked. Um, and certainly didn't work over the course of the last year. And for me, on my math, that looks more attractive now from a risk reward perspective. Small and mid caps, and you know, again, if you're worried about the declining fundamentals in small caps, there is the mid cap space, which does have solid earnings relative to the large cap space. And because they have solid earnings, they're cheap on their solid earnings. So they have clear valuation support. I do think that that has shifted the risk reward more positive for, let's call it the equal weighted S&P or down the cap spectrum. And that's why in some ways I talk, when I talk about technology and consumer discretionary and industrials, I think equal weighted is, is a good option when I look historically because there's clear valuation support with that earnings turn. So you might be able to get that double tailwind we're always really looking for, which is valuation expansion on top of potential earnings growth acceleration. So I think that in some ways, back to that broadening of the market that we might get or this digestion phase, which we're probably in the midst of in terms of, you know, maybe there's just volatility around the levels that we're seeing that's going to cause concern, but ultimately maybe it's a pause that refreshes, which is what that muted reaction in earnings growth, which in um, EPS beats actually suggests. So when you see that, maybe it is that the large cap indices maybe struggle more and that there's more potential upside in those equal weighted indices. So I do still see attractive opportunities down the cap spectrum, specifically in the mid cap space, less, you know, depending on your risk reward in the small cap space in consumer discretionary industrials and technology. Absolutely fascinating. So tell us a, a little bit more about, I'm just going back to the factors for a second, because I mean, there's a lot of so there's been a lot of bond buying this year. There's been there's been a lot of maybe low vol if you sort of go into the factor universe. 
Um, you know, and, and I think to some, it's frustrating that they haven't participated in what they've seen in this huge upswing. It was a surprise. We know the story. Um, what about that defensiveness in the market? Is it going to give way? I mean, what, what happens there from your perspective? What do you normally see sort of historically? Because people were scared. So they, they went in the direction of defense. But uh, how do you think that right. will give way or not? Yeah, ultimately, you know, when you think about what happened in 2022 and into 23, we essentially discounted a recession that didn't really end up happening, right? So defense, you saw that defensive rotation into 2022, into July of 2022, where it outperformed by about three times the rate that it typically does in recessions, leaving the group much more expensive. Now, look, they have underperformed over the last six months by an aggressive, by an equally aggressive rate, right? Because we've rotated back into cyclicals at that 1% mark, so top decile rotation that we've seen. And so that left, left has left defense and low ball uh, a lot less expensive. We're not inexpensive. We are not back to the levels that we saw in relative valuation where we were in what's called January of 2022, right before that big rotation in. Remember, going back to January of 2022, consumer staples, healthcare, to a lesser extent, utilities, were all in, it was really consumer staples and healthcare, were in bottom quartile and maybe even bottom decile relative valuations. And here's the other factor that you really need to actually outperform when I look historically, and bottom quartile or decile relative earnings growth. That meant that, you know, they had already not kept up in the real strong earnings recovery out of those pandemic lows. Fast forward to today, earnings growth for the broader market is still contracting and relative earnings growth for consumer staples has actually been quite good. So a lot of investors are saying, well, earnings growth has actually been good. Stocks are not as expensive as they were. Isn't that a positive risk reward? Not really. When you look at the historic pattern, what usually happens is that after real earnings growth is, you know, Relative earnings growth is strong for consumer staples. It's usually strong because earnings for the overall market are declining. Fast forward a year, what usually happens is the market overall earnings recovers and consumer staples lags. So you trade one you know, headwind for a different headwind, meaning that yes, you might not get the valuation headwind that you saw over the last six months, but the headwind that you see over the next six months is typically the fact that the group can't keep up with the earnings recovery. Now look, that's all wrong if earnings don't recover, but again, back to the, a lot of the patterns that I'm seeing in the market suggest that looks increasingly likely. So I haven't at this point asked you, we haven't discussed, um anything on on the monetary front and just to the extent that if it's done if the market tells us that the fed is done that you know we're pretty much at the top here um just what's left in sort of the fuel tank to really take off from here if if we get some version i mean either a cut or just some indication that we really are finished, which we don't have yet, although a lot of people seem to be assuming that. What's left in the tank in terms of sort of a melt-up scenario, I guess, if uh, if monetary policy messages something a bit more positive? Yes. So I think a lot of people were confused about the fact that you could have this sort of rate unwind, meaning the Fed wasn't going to be accommodative. And now it's priced in that they're not going to be they're not going to be cutting rates. And, you know, and I don't want to say for the foreseeable future, but I think the Fed fund futures is like past June next year. 
um, where they'd see cuts. And that unwind, they thought, would not possibly be met with the stock market advance. But when you looked historically, what they unwind is usually about is the lack of Right. So it's always the why behind what so you said, the lack of it just cut out very briefly there. You said it's the lack of I just, you just missed that one word. The key one, the lack of recession risk. Yeah. OK. Thank right. you. So when you in some ways, when you think about all of those rate cut expectations, it was around the fact that there was concern that the U.S. would be in a recession. And in prior recessions, the Fed usually cuts rates. So the question was always a struggle, or I always tried to think of it as a struggle behind what does that rate cut expectation mean? Does it mean accommodation that the equity market is dependent on, or does it mean that we're likely to get ourselves in trouble? And that was essentially a bearish bet on equities. When you looked back historically, you sort of found the answer is the vast majority of the time when whatever rate expectations unwind in terms of Fed cuts what you usually met with is an advancing market because the rationale behind why rates are rising is much more important than the fact that they are. Meaning that if the Fed is closer to done, whatever they do is less likely to be the biggest catalyst for the market than however fast we grow. And that's why I think investors need to shift the focus on what is the Fed doing? What is the Fed saying? What are interest rates doing? What are interest rates saying? All of that to what is growth likely to be to the extent that rates are a little higher or the Fed has to go every other. And they do that because growth is stronger than so looking back in history for the equity market, that seems to be not such a bad situation. So interesting. Okay, so just a sort of a final thought on on second quarter earnings. We're, we're not quite at the end here. There's still a little bit more to go. But um, I mean, can you call it <laughs> even though it's not completely over? Like, is do you wrap it up with um, some basically gets a check mark? Yeah, basically gets a check plus mark, I would say. You know, six to seven percent beat is not insignificant. And the biggest beats that we've seen thus far are in those economically sensitive sectors like consumer discretionary, specifically what had the best sort of positive revisions, uh, along with technology and industrials. So I think the fact that you're saying upward revisions for that beat be in the economically sensitive sectors usually has good forward predictive ability on future earnings and stocks following that. All right. And what do we do with the yield curve inversion? Just final. Boy, it's a tricky one in the sense that I just really don't love it as an indicator. I, I know people rely on it in terms of, hey, the yield curve is inverted and that's going to predict um, the next recession. And it will. But I don't know when that recession is going to be. So people always, when they talk about the yield curve, I think leave out 1966. So the yield curve inverted in 1966. Sure, it didn't invert as much as it's inverting now, but it inverted and we didn't have a recession until 1970. So yes, I guess it was right. It preceded the recession by four years. Um, but that's the problem is that when you really get into this math of, okay, you're relying on the yield curve recession indicator, the problem with recession indicators is you better nail the timing. Because remember, going back to that historical lesson from the 80s, the low between 1976 and 1985 was 1978. The low that we saw in the 1980 recession was higher than the low in 1978. And the low in the 82 recession, which was 18 months long, doubled the 1980 recession, was higher than the low in 1980. So you might have been right that the 
we were going to find a recession and that was going to be right. But you would have been wrong in this in the fact that stocks didn't break to new lows. So I think it's that tricky math in terms of the way you history. Yes, it's true that stocks always correct during a recession. And it's true that you always see a recession following a yield curve. But I think what the math shows you is that you have to nail the timing to make money that way. I'm just not sure that the risk reward is negative in any other indicator other than that hope of, you know, contraction. You put us straight and we so appreciate it. Denise Chisholm, thank you for sharing your time with us today on Fidelity Connects. It is always great to be here, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.